spent so much time talking about if we could, we never talked about if we should. Or what we should call it. I just meant the, the media in general. This is a dumb bit. Cut it out. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. My name is Pete Romberg, and uh, today I am coming off of a nice long weekend of Parent Palooza, where both my parents and my in-laws were in town, and we basically just uh, ate, drank, and were merry, and went on some architecture boat tour cruise. Joining me, as always, is my co-host. Martha Sullivan, exhausted baseball fan. Um, and also, apparently, architecture boat tours are just what you do when parent figures are in town. Because the last <laughs> time my mom's mom was visiting, we also we went on a Chicago River tour. So, so that it, must just be the thing to do. It was my mom's parents are in. It was my mom's suggestion to do this tour, and I'm glad she like suggested it because uh, it was really interesting. And I like. We are probably going to come down to Chicago at some point and do the Architecture River Tour because uh, I have not done it. It's something I really want to do. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. It's very cool. I also recommend just taking the water taxi, which mm. is cheaper, mm-hmm. um, has fewer narration or less narration, but is also just a very cool way to get around. Yeah, yeah. Chicago has a real nice riverfront. It's true. And lakefront. Cool. Um, So uh, today we are going to be talking about cyclical storytelling. This is the final episode of our, what we're calling our season two, possibly our sophomore year. Um, And so uh, as as the ending of one season and the beginning of the next season uh, with our next episode, we thought about cycles and circularity. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, it is only fair to uh, tell you what we have stuck in our heads this week. So, Martha, other than um, too much baseball that just kept on going, what is stuck in your head? Um, oh, goodness. Unless, unless you, baseball was going to be said, your stuck in the head. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. You said that, and I had something all ready to go. Why can't I think of what I was going to say? Oh, okay. I remember. So, I've been listening to this podcast called King of the Dark, which is run by Barnes & Noble. They are going through Stephen King's bestsellers. Uh, once a week, all summer, they have covered some of my very favorite books and some I haven't read before. Um, but they did an episode on The Stand, which is a book mm. that I haven't read yet. Mm. So I decided in my copious yes. free time. Yes, I like where this is going. <laughs> um, I am going to, I'm listening to it. I'm not reading it. I'm listening to it on audio. But I said, I'm just going to place a hold on this audiobook um, through my library. And whenever it comes in. I'll start listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it came in much sooner than I expected it to. It is a 47-hour audiobook, mm-hmm. and I am only 23. I've been listening to it. It feels like nonstop for two weeks now, and I'm only 23 hours in, and I'm starting to be afraid that my loan is going to expire before <laughs> I have a chance to finish this book. Uh, that's amazing. I'm a little sad that I am coming to it so late because I already knew kind of what the mid-book twist was. I've read The Stand twice. You're going to have to tell me what the mid-book twist is. Well, so it starts as a it starts as a disease book mm-hmm. and then it turns into oh. like a battle for good and evil book. Yeah, an, an apocalypse book. Yeah. Yeah. And I I feel like when it was first written and nobody knew about that, that was probably a surprise. Mm -hmm. But at this point, it's so culturally ingrained into us that it like I knew that that was going to happen. I just didn't know when. Yeah. Um, So I'm a little bummed that that wasn't that I didn't get to, like, discover that more holistically, I guess. Um, But it's a. It's a journey. Um, How long did you say the the book was on audiobook? 47 hours. Oh, man. Um, I am listening to the very last Wheel of Time book on audiobook, and that is a, a short 41 hour, almost 42 hours. And, and, and like you, I feel like I've been listening to this one book for like a, a month at this point. I suspect that what I have is the unabridged version. Because one of the reasons, 
One of the reasons it's taken me so long to get to the stand is because they republished it several years ago um, as the unabridged version. So it went from being like an 800 and some page book to an over a thousand page book. Yeah, I think it clocks into like maybe 1200. And I am a person for, I am a Stephen King stan. I'm here for him. You stand for I the stand? I do. Well, maybe not the stand specifically. <laughs> um, but he needs a much tighter editor. Mm-hmm. I don't think most of his stuff needs to be as long as it was. So having this book be so long was like, ugh, I, that's such a commitment. Yeah. Uh, as as followers of our Instagram feed will know, I uh, started reading Salem's Lot after our discussion about beach reads, uh, and I started reading it literally on the beach. Um, and I will admit, I have not finished it yet. And that book is short, for Stephen King standards. It's a quick read. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, it's a quick read. It's super breezy. I'm just reading, like, too many other books, so it, it's, like, it's taken the backseat a lot. Sure. So, anyway, I'm listening to The Stand. That's my life now. Cool. Um, what is stuck in my head this week is last weekend I finally buckled down and got Skyrim for the Switch. Uh, I have played Skyrim before. I own Skyrim for the Xbox 360, and it's jokingly called the Skyrim machine. Um, although nowadays that is simply consigned to the DVD player of the household. Playing Skyrim on Switch is great, the graphics are improved, the load times are dramatically diminished, and uh, it's got the three expansion packs that I never had, um, so I get more content, and it feels like a whole new world. Skyrim, for those somehow uninformed uh, from the year 2011 or whenever it came out, is a um, fantasy role-playing game that is awesome, (laughs) from the uh, Elder Scrolls series. I'm not going to get any more involved uh, than that. Um, Martha, do you guys have it? Have you played it? Um, I've played a little bit. I mm-hmm. got the um, the Platinum Edition for Christmas a couple of years ago. I'm a little stuck. I haven't played in several years because I'm stuck in between a couple of quests where every time mm-hmm. I try to go to do them, something kills me. Sure. Either a circle of witches sacrifices me or a yeti comes out of the woods and eats me, mm-hmm. which has been bumming me out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I've been playing a lot of Dragon Age Inquisition, which is like Skyrim, only it has a story. Right. I've never played any Dragon Ages. Um, and I feel like I should, but also I kind of like the lack of story in Skyrim. I like the idea of just like, again, like I played it on the Xbox. I know the general story arc. So like going through this time right now, I'm kind of in a bad place where I'm low enough level that random things will kill me stupidly. But high well, enough. Well, that's what le- I'm saying. Right. But like, but high enough level that I'll encounter them, and also because I've played the game before, where I got to very high levels, I'm like, oh, it's just a snow cat. I should be able to beat these things. Rose. Oh, I'm dead. Oh well, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I die? Um, oh, I also so. started playing The Witcher Three, which is also like Skyrim, only it has a story. Really, the problem is that I don't like sandbox games. Right, and I uh, generally care less about story in games. So for me, <laughs> like Skyrim is mainlining exactly what I want of wander around and do fantasy things. I need goals. Right, right. I need clearly delineated goals, and I don't want to come up with them on my own. Um, what is your feelings on The Witcher Netflix thing? Um. It's fine. I don't think Henry Cavill is old enough to be playing What's-His-Name, but I'm also going to, like, mainline it like cocaine when it comes out. Sure. So yeah. I'm trying not to be too critical because I know anything that I... Any criticisms that I have before the show will probably be immediately rendered moot when I watch it all in, like, three days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've consumed literally zero Witcher, like, content, um, whether books or video games or anything else like that, but I'm definitely planning on watching it because you had me at netflix spending money on a fantasy show like you had me at fantasy show with a good budget i checked the first book out of the library and then i had to return it because i just didn't have time to read it Mm -hmm. um i would very much like to read them at some point and i guess the show is going to be more drawing from the books rather than the games which apparently there is some departure there. I don't mm. know enough about the books or really the games. I've only played the third one sure. um, to be able to comment about that too much. Um, but yeah, I'm in. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I'm sure I will enjoy it. Well, I'm and... one of the three people on Earth that enjoyed um, Henry Cavill as Superman. So, 
he was a fine Superman in bad movies. So this is a sidebar and we don't have to spend too long on it, but I did watch Justice League recently. For the first time? For the first time. Oh, it's so bad. I enjoyed it. <laughs> actually. All right. Uh, um, particularly when compared with Batman versus Superman, which is possibly the worst movie I've ever seen. Yes, there's a hierarchy of Henry Cavill Superman movies, and, and BVS is at the bottom. I, I thought Justice League was a fun time. Uh, it Some of the movie was a fun time. Some of the movie wasn't. They did not know what was going on. They filmed that movie twice. It looked like garbage, and and yet it made it made more coherent sense and looked miles better than BVS. Like BVS, Ooh, I watched the I whole would... thing. Could not have told you at any point what anything was happening, like anything that was happening. I mean, Justice League at least had like a story. I, I agree that Justice League made more sense and had a plot and stuff. Uh, it was a bad plot, but there was one. I don't know if it looked better than BVS. Like, Zack Snyder has a lot of problems, but he's a visually good, like, you can like or hate his style, but he has a strong style. Justice League was that, but then diminished, like, you know, just they turned the volume down on it, and he's the kind of guy whose style you need to turn the volume up on. Um, as you, someone, uh, last episode talking about Sucker Punch and your enjoyment of that. Uh, that, <laughs> yes. that is a movie where Zack Snyder turned the, uh, the, the style dial all the way up to 11. We don't have to keep talking about this, but yeah, I did see Justice League recently. <laughs> nice. Uh, with, with that amazing uh, break, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, ooh, speaking of visual style, after the break, we're going to be talking about one of the most stylistically uh, influential movies in Hollywood, The Wizard of Oz. So stick around, and we will be right back. Welcome back. So today we are talking about cyclical or circular storytelling. Um, I say it that way because uh, I think the we officially called this episode cyclical storytelling. But as we were consuming these pieces of media, um, Martha and I realized that we had sort of different things in our mind when we were thinking about that term. And so therefore assigned two different medias that sort of tackled two different different but certainly related ideas. So before we start talking about our specific homeworks, we're going to look at the idea of circular storytelling on the one hand and cyclical storytelling on the other. We think that the homework's sort of like one fits in one branch and the other fits in the other branch, and these are definitely sibling ideas, uh, but they're not precisely the same. They're not twins. Uh, so here's a definition of circular narrative that I found. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, as, as Pete mentioned, when we were conceiving of this episode, I think we were using circular and cyclical interchangeably. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, hmm, that doesn't feel quite right. Um, so a definition of circular narrative that I found defines it as a circular narrative cycle through the story one event at a time to end back where the story originated rather than provide a clear conclusion tying together the remaining pieces of the story a circular narrative will provide closure through a return to the opening material. Mm -hmm. So basically it's a story that goes around in a circle ends where we began, but provides character growth through the process of getting back to that original starting point. And we're going to be talking about this later in the context of, of uh, comic book and comic book movies, but a lot of those feature into this where it's the idea of like, you get to take your toys off the shelf play with them for a little bit, but at the end of the day, you have to put them back on the shelf. And and by that, I mean, you know, if you're writing a, a Batman or a Spider-Man or whatever comic, you can do whatever weird thing with it, but eventually someone else is going to take up those reins, so you kind of have to reset to the status quo. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of cyclical storytelling, where I'm thinking in terms of cycles. I don't have any clear-cut definition for this, um, but the both the conceptual idea of cycles um 
the fifth season, which was my homework, does a lot of ideas of, of cycles, whether of natural cycles or of cycles of oppression or cycles of change. Um, and also just even narrative cycles where things are sort of in resonance with each other throughout the book, but not, uh, the book does not end at the same place where it began. Rather, instead, we've had a couple different arcs that have slowly sort of built up, um, almost like sediment, to create sort of a, a final story that in the final act all clicks together, maybe because timelines are discontinuous in the storytelling or for other reasons. Um, but it's it's sort of more of a, a wandering path rather than a a more linear path that takes you back to where you began. Well, and I'm mad at the internet right now because I was trying to find a neat definition of cyclical narration like the one I found of Circular, and all of these articles use them interchangeably too, and mm -hmm. I really do feel like we're talking about different things. Um, I believe before we started recording that I referred to cyclical narration as narration that depended on like repetition of themes mm -hmm. or um, of themes or, or events or ideas. And then circular narration like really does put you back where you started with like a whole story's worth of material to contemplate while you are back at this beginning point. Yeah, and and rereading the fifth season and rewatching Wizard of Oz for me, I as I was consuming them, I was thinking to myself, these are totally different storytelling styles. So I, I do think you're right, Martha, that like circular and cyclical are not interchangeable. But also, it makes total sense that we all would just use them interchangeably because unless you're really comparing two different examples of them side by side, it's kind of hard to like really dive down into that difference well and i think it'll be worth talking about the differences between literal and perhaps metaphorical um circular storytelling like wizard of oz as we will see literally takes dorothy right back to where she started i think there's also something to a narrative that takes you back thematically to right where you started and mm -hmm. we can talk about whether or not that actually falls into the definition of cyclical rather than circular mm -hmm. um but let's talk about the wizard of oz yeah so i picked the wizard of oz for this uh episode the wizard of oz came out in 1939 randomly we are recording this on august 25th the Wizard of Oz came out on August 25th. It is currently the 80th anniversary of The Wizard of Oz, which is total just happenstance, but a really delightful one. That's wild, and I love it. Yeah. Um, so it stars Judy Garland as Dorothy, and then a whole bunch of people, including Billy Burke as Glinda the uh, Good Witch, Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, and then Jack Haley, Burt Lair, and Ray Bolger as the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow. Uh, the Wizard of Oz tells the story of Dorothy Gale, who lives on a little farm in Kansas and dreams about finding adventures and other things, you know, on the other side over the rainbow. Uh, until a tornado picks up her house and drops her into Oz where she has to make her way to the wizard who will grant her uh, the power to go home. Uh, in the meantime, she is dogged by the Wicked Witch of the West who wants her shoes back, which she was given by Glinda as a protection um, as she you know, journeys through this strange and magical land. Uh, this movie only won two Oscars, which is kind of wild to think about. One of them because... better have been effects, right? Oh my god, it did um, not win an effects category? Did that did even was, exist? Was there an effects yeah, category? Yeah, that, that, that's fair. <laughs> Maybe that's why it did not win. Um, It was nominated for Best Picture. I don't know if it it didn't win, I guess. I would win. be interested lost, in seeing well, what movie... It lost to a little movie you might have heard of called Gone with the Wind. Oh, shoot. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but this movie is the 
Pete, tell me about the um, the Library of Congress stat that you found for us. Yeah, so this is based on Wikipedia. Um, the Library of Congress says that it is the most seen film in movie history. And I think part of that is because in 1956, CBS bought up the television broadcast rights. And so, um, much like It's a Wonderful Life, this movie really had a second life on like TV during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so there was an entire generation of, of people, the boomers, um, who had constant exposure to this via uh, TV rebroadcasting, um, which sort of allowed it to continue in a way where, like, you know, Gone with the Wind is still a famous movie, but it hasn't, for good reasons, uh, suffused the culture in the same way that The Wizard of Oz does. Um Rewatching the Wizard of Oz this time around, I there were so many reference, like so many lines and things that I'm just like, oh yeah, that's totally a thing. Or like, yeah, my mom will just randomly say that, and I did not realize it was from the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I believe the Wizard of Oz is the most, like, it's the most pop culturally quoted piece of media. Like more, more things reference the Wizard of Oz than anything else. Yeah, I totally believe that. This movie owns, actually. <laughs> I, I had not seen it in a while. It's a really good film. So the reason I picked it for this episode is, of course, because of the fact that um, a lot of the actors in it end up playing two different characters. They play the people that Dorothy knows and loves on her farm in Kansas, and then they have a an Oz counterpart. I keep wanting to say Wonderland. That's different. <laughs> um, so... Like the um, Mrs. Gulch, the kind of grumpy neighbor is the Wicked Witch of the West and her farmhands um, end up in Wonderland and end up in Oz, not Wonderland, <laughs> Martha. We just talked about this um, as the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow. And so when she wakes up at the end back in Kansas, she has the and you were there and you and you moment where, you know, we all kind of wonder like oh was this actually a dream that she had right i totally remember you know like because again it is one of the most quoted things in in movies and pop culture i totally remember the like and you were there and you and you so i knew that you know the scarecrow the tin man the cowardly lion they were the farmhands um i totally forgot that elmira gulch the neighbor it with the amazingly named neighbor is a character uh before she becomes the wicked witch of the west i totally forgot that there's like a weird old professor in the woods who ends up being the wizard uh, of Oz. Mm -hmm. I did not remember 90% of the black and white parts of this movie, uh, which was, was really nice to like rewatch and be like, oh, geez, this is like most of the movie. Well, and I also enjoy this because, so under the kind of rules of the circular narrative, we end up back where we started. We end up back in Kansas with the same people that Dorothy has been singing wistfully about kind of wanting to get away from and grow beyond and see what's out there. And she ends up back home and there is a reading of this movie that where she is now happy to have stayed in Kansas. Like this is where she's meant to be. This is her home. You know, she, she had, she dreamed about her adventure, but she got to come home. And now that is, you know, good enough for her. But I think the point of circular storytelling is not necessarily that we end up back at the same place that we started and are happy about it, but that we got to do some growth and reflecting on the way there. So I, I don't necessarily think that it's entirely fair to say that like, oh, what Dorothy really wants is to be back where she started because she accomplishes a lot in you know whether whether Oz is a dream or not, like she defeats this, um, she defeats this. But I don't want to call her evil. I've read too much Wicked. I can't call the Wicked Witch of the West <laughs> you, evil. You call her Wicked. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, I mean, she like um, she learns that there's no place like home. True, and I I don't know that that necessarily means for her that now home is enough just that home has value yes. that she maybe didn't see um or wasn't super aware of because she's also like 16 so 
teenagers never know right. how good how good they have it. <laughs> right, right. Um, one, but yeah, one... she gets to learn that she gets to learn that home is good, actually, uh, and then come home and actually get a chance to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. One thing I was thinking about with the the circularity or the the <laughs> circularity or cyclical nature, um, and I don't quite know how how to place this one is that like so the scarecrow is looking for a brain but throughout the entire uh, oz sequence he is the intelligent person of the group who is making up the plans and everything and at the end the wizard validates that by saying like you're as smart as anyone else you just need a piece of paper uh and did it with a tin man who needs a heart but he's the most like he's crying all the time he is the most empathic and emotional of the group and at the end you know that's validated uh the cowardly lion kind of breaks this mold because he is objectively cowardly uh in very many sequences um but uh there's this idea that and i think this works for a lot of other characters too um where it's kind of the idea of like their care like it's all about their character growth they're not changing actually like the the scarecrow doesn't get smarter he just realizes that he is intelligent um and sort of it, it's more of a self it, it's an internal journey yeah it's an inner journey not an outer journey um yeah it's about characters learning to appreciate or not learning to appreciate what they have but learning that the qualities that they value, they are already manifesting, just not in a way that they might have initially realized it because it right. looks different than what they like have been taught that it should. Right. Which actually feels like a very, um, it, it's a, I almost called it a very millennial. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say very youngian. So that's, that's rather different. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it it has a lot of similarities to the like this this idea that we can be what we are, and that mm. can be good enough. It does feel like it has a lot of resonance for today of the idea of like being like it's fine to be who you are and not only be who you are, but like embrace it and understand the the positive qualities of it. Yeah, so I'm thinking actually very specifically, I, I was trying to think of a way to phrase this more generally, but I don't think there's any harm in talking more explicitly about what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking very specifically about like the body positive movement, mm -hmm. which is all about like embracing and making the most of how you look right now mm -hmm. and how that can be not not just enough, but great. Mm-hmm. Because we, and by we I mean women, have been taught forever to devalue the way that we look and to always be striving for something else. And I kind of like that one of the messages in this movie is not just you're, you're fine the way you are, but it's explicitly finding value in that. Like it's more, it's more explicit than just we love you just the way you are. It's, and this is how the way you are has value. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. And, sorry, as as you were saying that, I was kind of like thinking through the movie's portrayal of that idea. And I'm going to talk this through. I might cut it. You also, I might finish it and be, and you might say like, that's stupid. Um, <laughs> but, but like, it almost feels like the movie is gaslighting its characters a little in the sense that again thinking like scarecrow and tin man more than any other um but even dorothy to a certain extent the idea that like the entire movie scarecrow like obviously he is he has the ideas he's the idea man the whole way through and i'm frankly not sure if we as the audience are supposed to be recognizing it's like oh wait no he is smart or like no the tin man he keeps rusting because he's crying all the time he must have a very big heart um and so I, I, I kind of wasn't sure if we were supposed to be latching onto that idea and understanding from the get-go this, like, discrepancy between what the characters think versus, like, what they are portraying. The classic, you know, you are what you do, not what you say. Um, I think I think we are, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, I think we're supposed to be understanding that these are character traits that they have all along because of that diploma that the scarecrow gets at the end like that's not a brain right it's, like, it's, a, it's a piece of paper 
Exactly. And that's validating something that already exists. It's not really giving him anything new. The tin heart is a little harder because that's a literal heart. But it's also um, phrased in the, like, uh, what, like a testimonial? So, like, you know, you, you just need someone to tell you, like, oh, you're a good uh, um, philanthropist, which is the word that the, the wizard could not say. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would call it gaslighting. I'm kind of uncomfortable using that word here. Totally. But I think it's it's definitely supposed to be a case of, like, these characters want these, they want to be better than they are, but it turns out that by wanting that, they kind of already are. And the movie is assuming that the, or like, is pushing the audience to be in on that. Yes, like you, you, I think so. You, yeah, you are supposed to agree that, like, oh, the Tin Man does have a heart by scene three yeah. of his. Yeah, I think it's that the audience um, is supposed to be in agreement with the wizard mm-hmm. when he is giving these gifts so like they're they're with the wizard when he's validating these characters sure which makes sense because the wizard is like i mean obviously he's a con man but like even as he's presenting the gifts he's kind of like snarking about it he's like no oh, there are great thinkers in the world and they don't have any more brains than you do which i feel like cu- it cuts both ways he's a con man but he's also like in this he has a heart in of gold. In this portrayal, I don't think... I think it's supposed to be more of, like, a lovable trickster kind of con man oh, rather totally. than yeah. a... <laughs> he's he's not a bad con man, but he is a con man. He is a con man, yeah. Speaking of... the of, uh, In this portrayal, are we just going to brush over the fact that they're ruby slippers instead of silver slippers? The entire oh, allegory have... is lost. But we know why that was true. Why what was true? Why they made them ruby slippers instead of silver. Oh, I don't. I assume they film oh, better. It's it's because they were filming in color. It's because color was such a new mm. thing um, that the studio said, can silver we make these? Yeah, can we make these like an actual color so that they'll look more... Um, so they'll yeah. be more of a, a visual. They'll pop. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Judy Garland is from Marin's hometown, and there's a museum for her up there, and they have some silver slippers up there, so or ruby slippers up there. So, are they the? Oh, they're not the. I think the ruby slippers are in the Smithsonian. They might have come back from the Smithsonian to be there. I don't actually know. Um, this is this is good radio. <laughs> this is real good radio. <laughs> this is what our listeners love. Let's talk about the fifth season. I was going to say, is there anything else you want to talk about, um, Wizard of Oz? But no. So, uh, the fifth season is a sci-fi, it's like a science fantasy book by N.K. Jemisin. Um, it won the Hugo for uh, Best Novel in 2016, which kicked off her run of first and only hat-trick Hugos for the other books in this season, or in this uh, series. It is in a world <gasps> defined by the fact that at random intervals there is cataclysmic events. Um Either a volcano, it throws so much ash in the air that it becomes like, you know, a 10-year winter, that sort of thing. Uh, So the entire society is structured around survival and surviving these fifth seasons. Um, The other thing that she introduces is uh, the the ragas, to use the drag door term, or the uh, origins. You went straight for the slur there, man. I did. Uh, (laughs) You know, we're a bunch of stills here talking about them, so it's okay. Um, so, or, or, or the origins who are, uh, basically magic users, they have a, uh, a magical sort of connection with the earth and can control fault lines, seismic changes, seismic activity, that sort of thing. Um, they are entirely reviled by all of society, um, considered as literal monsters and are killed and lynched, uh, by other people if they're discovered, or they get taken in by the state-run institution known as the fulcrum which sort of controls and channels them and uses them for good to stop earthquakes and that sort of thing uh where they are respected but still definitely feared and disliked and distrusted the book is between three main characters uh esun a um a woman whose husband just murdered their two-year-old child because he discovered that he was a, a uh, an origin um, and now she is is sort of like hunting for him and their other daughter as a fifth season is beginning. We learn that she herself is an origin as well. 
Um, we have Damia, who's a young girl who is taken from her family um, by a, basically a warder-type character, a, a guardian to uh, enter the fulcrum and become a state-trained magic user. Uh, and then we have uh, Sayanite, who is a new mid-tier magic user who is sent on a mission that she does not want to um, with a very powerful magic user. And we learn by the end of the book that all three characters are the same person at different life cycles. So I sort of, I, I, I picked it for a few reasons. First off, because I think that, again, going back to our earlier discussion, uh, Martha, this was a case where cyclical versus circular made a big difference. Um, a lot of this book and the other two books in the series deal with cycles, whether it's cycles of nature, such as the five seasons, um, like if you have a society structured on random but cataclysmic <laughs> change and, and uh, you know, disaster, um, there's a lot of like cycles built in. Uh, the books are also deeply involved with like the idea of cycles of oppression and how oppressed people will do what they can to survive and how like that the the <clears throat> the oppression is continued through uh, through many ways and throughout society but also i was thinking of it in terms of how it's structured unlike every book i've ever i've ever read essen's chapters are written in second person point of view which is fascinating to me and they all have their own unique like story cycles that culminate at the end it's kind of almost like a uh, chris nolan situation uh they culminate at the end and you're like oh they're all the same person that's so cool um, right is like another big reveal is happening. I know you didn't quite get to finish it, but what did you think as you were reading it and, and then wikiing it to figure out the plot? <laughs> um, I liked a lot of it. I think N.K. Jemison is a genius. Um, I know her mostly from her hundred thousand or her, yeah, hundred thousand kingdoms books. Yeah. Um, I had some trouble with this one. Okay. Um, mostly I found the second person segments to be very alienating hmm. which is sort of the opposite i think of what that style of writing is supposed to do the you know saying like you feel this way or you do this i feel like was supposed to be a very intimate way of telling the story and mm -hmm. for me it was just mostly like well i don't because <laughs> I'm, I'm not, not your character. <laughs> right, right. I also have a very low tolerance for invented fantasy language. And I kept flipping to the index in the back, like just trying to figure out what they were talking about. Sure. Uh, it's, it's funny. The episode I signed this on, we were talking about A Wheel of Time, which uh, on your scale of invented fantasy languages is at like 15 out of 10. Listen. I tried to read the Wikipedia summary of Wheel of Time, yeah, yeah. and my eyes went cross-eyed. Right. Uh, so, like, in my mind, like, on the one hand, that's up at 15. So then when I was thinking of this, like, rereading this one, I'm like, oh, this is, like, at a three? It's entirely possible that this is just a book that demands your full attention, mm -hmm. and that just wasn't possible for me mm -hmm. at this point. But I did get a very strong sense. I mean, the book opens with, a like, the world is ending as it has done before, as it will again. So, like, the book opens on a very explicit, like, we move in cycles kind of deal. Yes. Um, and I assume that these cataclysm cycles are something that the subsequent books get a little bit more into, like, how explicitly on how, like, those work. Yeah. I I think it is cool that it's a braided narrative also, like moving back and forth between who you think are three, who you initially are meant to think are three separate characters. Mm -hmm. um, and you find out that they're not, it's almost the kind of reveal that makes you want to go back and start from the beginning just to see how that knowledge kind of affects how you feel about these characters. Yeah. And just like knowing that Demaya becomes Essen, like Demaya is a child. Essen has children. Um, seeing that kind of you know what that means for the or how her how her childhood and upbringing is now affecting how she feels about her children and where she is raising them and the choices that she's making to keep their orogeny a secret like that kind of thing mm -hmm. well and, um, so and, thought... and even more so I, I don't know how far you got in but uh, um say a knight who's like the the middle aged not middle age but like the middle of the age group of the the person um, you know, yeah, she's like 
what would you say, like 20s? Like I, if Demaya is a preteen teenager, uh, Sayonite is like early to mid 20s? I would guess her to be about mid to late 20s, only because she's a four ringer, so like she must have been good enough to get up to there. Um, well, but, but I guess she, became, she got her first ring early, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, long story short, like she has a kid already, and then, or she has a kid, and then. Um, uh, spoilers, um, the kid is, is she kills him to prevent him from being taken by the fulcrum, by the institution, and, like, being returned to slavery, basically. Um, what she views as that at the time. So, like, this is a woman who has gone through a lot of trauma even before we get to her discovering that her husband has killed their, like, their two-year-old. Um, that is, like, her third cycle of trauma. Like it's it's a lot of cycles of trauma in in this book and in these series, um, all happening it's, to the same person. Um, I also enjoyed how it sort of gets into how cycles of trauma perpetuate each other. Mm-hmm. Like we we treat other people the way that we have been treated, which is why abusers were are frequently people who have been abused in their past. Yeah. Um, and just as a qualifier, I know that that is not always true. And there are absolutely people out there who are amazingly strong and break those cycles of abuse. But I think it, it is generally, it is very common for people who were abused to also then perpetuate that abuse, um, on other people. So Essen's daughter is a point of view character in the second and third book. And there's a lot. Oh, that rules. oh no, it's amazing. Um, there's a lot to unpack in those where, like, her daughter seriously dislikes her mother because her mother, uh, like Essen, was trying to train her in like the fulcrum kind of way. And it's like this is like a you need to hide what you are because everyone will, will think you're a monster. B you need to control your powers because you're very powerful. Um, so C I'm going to take you out on these like secret one-on-one training sessions but i will not treat you super well because i am terrified for you like essen is terrified for her daughter um but that is expressed through being a harsh taskmaster which her daughter does not respond to so her daughter hates her mother um even though like the mother loves the daughter so like it's it's very much like it's not just um cycles of abuse but it's like how how the abuse and how the the system of abuse uh you know that that like you know controls and and like destroys all origins um destroys individual relationships as well well and i think this is where we get into one of the cruxes of the difference between a circular versus a cyclical narrative i think circular i i tend to read circular narrative as being very literal like we literally end in the same place that we started, whether Mm -hmm. that's, you know, physically or whatever. And in a cyclical narrative, it's more metaphorical. Like you're talking about perpetuating um, different like cycles of behavior or cycles of history. Like it's not, it's not a literal, we are back in Kansas. It is more of a, I am doing the same things that this this group is doing something that the other group had done to them. Right. Yeah. Uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, the last line of Chris Nolan's movie Memento, which is like, now, where were we? Or something like that. Um, and how Memento, I don't know if you would consider that a circular or cyclical movie in general, but like, Nolan, as a director who loves to play with time, kind of like the fifth season does. Um, I like Nolan a lot. I like it the fifth season. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. You know, you you could see how some of his stuff might be considered cyclical, but also probably not circular. I think Memento is very literally circular because um, what's his name? The actor Guy, Guy Pierce, Pierce, like, yeah. is trapped in a circle in his own brain. Like he he is trapped in a circle that his broken brain cannot escape from, mm-hmm. which means he like that's that's a really literal right. He's also making Circle. choices to not ever leave it. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Memento. Uh, it ends up with him. <laughs> he makes a choice to kill uh, um, Joey Pants. So. 
Spoiler alert for a Spoiler alert for Memento. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert for the very first scene of Memento. <laughs> God, no, I think that's a 16-year-old movie because I saw that movie in high school. Uh, Goldberg showed that to us in philosophy class. That was why I didn't like it because after... Like, all of my friends pooped themselves over it, and then, like, every English and philosophy class I had subsequent to that had an excuse to show it to me. I watched that movie, like, 12 times. <laughs> it's not that good. I mean, it's really good. It's not 12 times watching good, but, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, one thing, Martha, you want to talk about, I, I, I feel like that's a pretty good discussion of the fifth season, unless there's anything else you wanted to add. I guess... Anything else that you would want to bring up? I mean, the the big thing is when I assigned this, I was thinking of sort of the series overall. The mm-hmm. the the other two books, it's a trilogy. Um, the other two books do not do as much of the. In fact, I don't think they do at all of the braided narrative, and I don't think they do the second person. If so, it's not as like foregrounded. Um, but they do delve much deeper into like the cycles of exploitation and the cycles of oppression and they go much deeper into like the history of everything i mean this the first book literally ends with have you ever heard of a thing called the moon um because you find out at the very end that like this is a planet that doesn't have a moon um but it did was it worth all along (laughs) yeah i mean no uh but like there was a moon uh like it's it's kind of alluded to earlier it's like no one looks up at the sky the idea of astronomy is like a quack science because everyone's focused on survival and on the earth which is trying to kill them but like you find out that a a far distant civilization did some bad things and and like there used to be a moon now there isn't a moon but even the moon itself is on a long arc orbit um i I don't know what's actually called but like it it only passes by the earth now every so often thousands and thousands of years at a time and so even that is like a massive cycle of change um and even just like cycles in general like you have uh, seasonal cycles yearly cycles galactic cycles that sort of thing um so so when we were talking about the idea of cyclical storytelling um that's sort of what jumped into my mind was the idea of seasonal cycles and yearly cycles and like how important cycles are to so many of our stories and so much of our like deep root culture that feels like a good spot to get into our dqs it does um you wanted to talk about what our formats uh accomplish like uh, what, what is the format accomplishing in our homeworks well and i guess what what i i don't mean like prose versus cinema i oh, mean that's like literally what i thought you meant what so. is it <laughs> oh no like what is it what is being a cyclical narrative accomplishing for the fifth season? Mm. Mm-hmm. Do we think that is a useful question or no? Because it literally like is baked into it. Well, I, I would actually almost want to, to go at this with talking about the actual formats. Um, I think that the wizard of Oz works. <sighs> I, I've never read the book, but I think that the movie works so well because you meet the farm hands in the first act and then when you're reintroduced to them as the scarecrow and the tin man you're like that guy looks familiar uh and then when yes, they come back around that, at the end having that visual having the visual is so important um the flip side is true i think with the fifth season where it's been optioned for you know some someone's gonna make it into a tv show at some point it's been optioned we'll see if it ever happens but i wonder how well that will work because um like, on the one hand, uh, Damaya and the other two could be anyone. Like, you cast a child actor, you cast the uh, the girl from that zombie movie we watched a couple seasons, <gasps> season and a half The ago. girl with all the gifts. girl with all the gifts. You cast her as Damaya, be awesome. Um, but then for, for Sayanite and Essen, you kind of have to cast the same person, and it's going to be like, oh, it's just the same person. So you have to deconstruct the story, I think, to make it work in a visual medium. Um, I don't I don't think you'd have to cast the same person. I they're close enough in age that I think it'd be a little bit weird to have. I guess maybe like at most they're at most they're ten years difference. Okay, but that's a lot. It is, but it's not. I think it'd be. Did you see? Did you see Moonlight? 
Yes. Oh, that's amazing. But that's that's a that's only, a child, a teenager, and an adult. Um, but I would say there's probably less than ten years age difference between teen and adult phases in that movie. Yeah, but it's it's a crucial ten years. Whereas in my mind, fifth season, I those think... those ten years are are less. I I look more like myself at twenty two than my twenty two year old self, or that than my twenty six year old self did at well, sixteen. So if we if we assume that um, middle yeah, say a night middle grade um is everyone in her from the fulcrum is named after a rock so she's uh, <laughs> say a night is a rock and I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that correctly no but like Essen has seen some stuff yeah she's born a couple of more children I think you're I think you could do it I also don't know that it matters keeping that a secret. I'm not sure either, but it would require a different, it, like, to me, it's such like the Chris Nolan, everything coming together in that third act, uh, move to, to, to be like, oh, they're all the same person. You could totally deconstruct it and not have it be a secret, but it would be a different structure to the novel. Um, I don't know if it's, I, I think the novel is a good story, so you could do it even without that move, um, but I think that sort of like does help build with the secularity of it uh, in a way that, you know, it, it was the hook that got me into it. Um, I don't know. I think you could play more with um, like similar story themes across mm. the three different stories mm -hmm. if you were less concerned with keeping that a secret from your audience. I'm also a person when I'm, particularly with visual media, I don't appreciate the feeling of having information deliberately withheld. Like I don't, yeah. I don't appreciate knowing that the narrative is deliberately withholding something from me. Yeah. And I, I think that I agree with you 100% when it comes to visual media, because it's like, stop keeping that person in the shadows and just show me who it is. Like if you're keeping them in shadows and you're making their voice all deep and gravelly, clearly it's someone just show me. Yeah. Um, have you read Wizard of Oz? Like the, the no. original book? Okay. Um, I have not. Well, great. That uh, prevents my question of, do you know if it's structured the same way? <laughs> With like the farm Sorry. hands being, uh, <laughs> being the scarecrow and all the rest. Um, listeners, weigh in. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to talk about your sort of angle on this question? I kind of feel like we've covered it. Okay. What I would really like to get into is how both of these show up in other widespread narratives, because they're both incredibly common mm -hmm. in telling stories, particular, I think, particularly cyclical. And we can we can get into whether or not this actually counts as cyclical. But I think frequently, particularly in long form storytelling, we see a lot of repeated thematic beats and a lot of like repeated moments do you want I to know just quickly define long term storytelling long like long form storytelling there we go oh like a series like a series of books or a series of movies mm. or a like a tv show mm -hmm. something that something that is more than a single unit mm -hmm. Um, but when we were initially discussing this episode, one of the things that I was thinking about was Avengers Endgame and how much I appreciated the little beats in that movie that echoed back through all of the rest of the Marvel movies that we had seen. The one in particular that destroyed me and spoiler alert for Avengers Endgame, mm -hmm. we have already done a whole episode about it. But, you know, just in case, skip forward like 20 seconds. Uh, but when Happy is talking to uh, Tony Stark's daughter at his funeral and she says that she's hungry and he asks her what she wants to eat and she says a cheeseburger, mm -hmm. which is a very clear callback to Iron Man when Tony Stark comes back from being held hostage and he says he wants to call a press conference and he wants an American cheeseburger. They get him a Burger King burger. It's hilarious. Um, that was the moment that like destroyed me well, and because it was such a clear echo of another very like iconic emotional beat from the movies and they they played it well where like i didn't 
I don't know if I could have told you specifically that it was a reference to like that bit. I kind of remember how he wanted a cheeseburger, but like not that well. Oh my god, I thought of it. I thought of it instantly. Well, I, and I was gonna <laughs> say that like Happy's response to that was so good because he's like, "Yeah, your dad also liked cheeseburgers. I'll get you all of the cheeseburgers." <laughs> um, so it's it was a good combination of like calling it back and also like nudging you a little bit so that if you're like me and you didn't quite get the call back, you're like, oh, "I think it's a call back." It's like, "Oh, it's totally a call back." Um, well, and then Avengers also very explicitly goes back to the previous. It's a time heist movie. movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even then, like, I, I mean, I so so I just rewatched it, um, you know, a week ago or something. I loved that. Like, I'm a sucker for time heists, time travel, seeing the same scene, but from a different perspective. I loved all that, but I. The thing that actually got me the most was the bit where they go, uh, where Steve and Tony go farther back into the past, into, like, the 70s, um, where it's all new material, but it's still, like, it's John Slattery, and, like, it's still hearkening back to a lot of Marvel Cinematic Universe lore and knowledge. Oh, you mean when they... I think that's more like the 60s. Uh, yeah, whenever it is. Uh, they When they go back to yeah. the, um, the S.H.I.E.L.D. slash HYDRA base uh, in New Jersey. Um... And like and like Penny's there and all the or Peggy is there and all the rest of it. Um, but it, like it's it's not a callback in the same way that like oh we're going to Asgard we're going to the Battle of New York. It's like no we're just going to a a space that we have visited at various points through Marvel movie lore and we're visiting characters we've seen before. But we're doing something new in a new time zone. And it also another thing that I was thinking about was how just comics in general have to exist in a very circular storytelling pattern mm -hmm. because of how frequently they get rebooted and how frequently they have to be um, made accessible to new readers at basically any point. So yeah. there's always a little bit of a feeling of we have all been here before. Mm -hmm. I mean, and like speaking of just comic book movies, how many times have we seen the Waynes get gunned down in crime alley? Like, Mm -hmm. it, I, I was so appreciative of the spider of the new Spider-Man when it was like, oh, we don't have to see Uncle Ben got, die. Thank God. Right. So I guess as I am talking about all of this, my my question becomes, is there something that we find comforting about this style of narration because it relies so heavily on things that we've already experienced before? Like, are we just are we just always afraid of experiencing new things in media? That's interesting. I think, like, I, I'm thinking back into, like, deeper, you know, literary history where um, so much of, like, big literature we have is literally just, like, retellings of other stories. Um, you know, like, at, there's 10,000 versions of the Arthur legend before 1450 uh like the um so, some of like the like the iliad is a sort of like poetic retelling of a story that had been passed down for you know hundreds of years or whatever uh, in various formats which is why there are so many different versions of it um so i think we as like storytelling cultures like to tell stories that we're kind of familiar with and then just add our own things to it like um, again, there are still, for whatever reason, uh, new movies of, like, new Arthur movies coming out, new, uh, you know, Robin Hood movies coming out. So, like, the idea of, like, we all know these basic beats, but what if instead it was twisted a little bit? Um, and that's good or bad. Well, and I think that, like, you know, superheroes and are And then the... is that the same thing... Is that the same thing that we're talking about right now? Well, and I was going to say, like, I feel like superheroes are the modern-day version of that. Like, if, if you subscribe to the Grant Morrison theory of, um, like, superheroes are the modern-day gods, um, which I feel like is very much like the DC... Eh, we get deep in this, but in my mind, DC is the, like, mythic archetype, whereas Marvel is, like, the emotional archetype, where DC's characters are, are big and, and bold and godlike and, and um, uh, symbols... Um, whereas Marvel's much more grounded and cares about those individuals as individuals. Um, but I, I feel like, especially in DC, you can play with them as archetypes, and therefore you can retell those stories forever. Is retelling, is retelling the same story, I guess, 
is that the same thing that we're talking about when we talk about cyclical narration? Because mm. I guess I I tend to think of that as revisiting a theme across different stories, right. whereas cyclical narration is something that happens inside of one story. Right, and and I would... I don't think so. I think that, like, Marvel... Uh, like, the MCU ending with Endgame is a good example of both... Uh, I don't think it's circular narration, but it's certainly cyclical narration um, in the sense that it's a lot of callbacks, it's a lot of repeated themes. The characters are growing and developing over the course of these movies, but in some of the movies you could drop in without having seen previous uh, you know, movies and be like, okay, I get what's going on. By Endgame, uh, watching Endgame this time around, I was like, if you hadn't seen the end, the post-credit stinger sequence for Ant-Man and Wasp, you would have no idea what Scott Rudd is doing, in, or Paul Rudd is doing in this movie, uh, which is a bold move True. on Marvel's part. Although that did not negative. That did not negatively impact my viewing experience. No, and like, and I had, I had seen that scene, so that was fine, but also I was like, laughing to myself, like, this is a Bold move on Marvel. Like, um, I, well, and I'm saying I hadn't seen right, that scene. Right. And you, you just rolled with it. You're like, oh, he was trapped in Quantum. See okay. At the end of the last. Right. Yeah. It's like, that's fine. At the end of this endgame cycle, that feels like it's like they have told a complete story. Looking back at the 22 movies involved in here, it's cyclical. There's a lot of repeat of themes and ideas. Um, but the characters have evolved and changed a lot over time, and they don't end up in the same place which makes it not circular. Um, I think in comic storytelling overall, there is a lot more circularity because at the end of the day, we're going to have a hard reboot or like when you put down your Superman toy, someone else is going to pick it up after you. So you need to make sure that his changes aren't like, he's always going to be Superman. Maybe he's married to Lois Lane. Maybe he isn't, but he's still like Superman. True. That feels like a pretty good place to end, unless there's anything else you want to be talking about. I'm good. All right, cool. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. A little bit shaggy, but shaggy's great, especially when we're talking about circular and cyclical storytelling. If I'd been really smart, I would have written down what we were talking about at the very beginning and make a reference to it. However, I'm not that smart, so instead you can follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. And I believe that is also our handle on Instagram. It is, yes. Great, fantastic. Um, you can find us wherever fine podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, etc. cetera. Uh, you can find us on Facebook just by searching Did You Do Your Homework? And you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Tune in on alternating Wednesdays to listen to the other podcast that Martha is doing with my wife, Marin. Uh, that is called Love Ya, where they're talking Netflix YA movies. Um, what are you talking about next week? Next week, we are going, we are visiting the movie that was the inspiration for the entire podcast. We will be talking about To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I've never heard of that. I don't think anyone's ever heard <gasps> of that. How can you be married to your wife? I'm joking. <laughs> I've never seen it, but obviously I've heard of it. Yeah, so obviously if you're subscribed to this feed, you'll get that as a bonus episode every opposite Wednesday in your feed. And if you're not subscribed to this feed, what's wrong with you? Go subscribe to it. And then you get Love Ya uh, for free. Martha, where can people find you on the internet? It's all free. <laughs> uh, you can find me you can find me in all the places at Magical Martha. Um, you can find my newsletter, which I put out when I feel like it, um, at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. If you would like to, if you would like that to come out more frequently, uh, there's a PayPal link at the bottom of each issue. Drop a dollar in my tip jar, and I will consider producing more content for you. Uh, that at the moment I do for free. Nice. Uh, speaking of for free, you can see all my hot takes for free on the Twitters. Uh, that's at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000. Uh, it's mostly politics and pop culture at this point. Uh, it was delightful a few days ago when it was a dystopic, whirling maelstrom of terribleness uh, when I had all of my um, Jewish comics Twitter 
uh, losing their minds about both Spider-Man going leaving Marvel and Matrix 4 and Donald Trump calling himself the king of Israel. Um, it was a It day. was a lot. It was a lot for a two-hour uh, time period. <laughs> um, all right, so... Uh, this is the end of our season two, the end of our sophomore year. We're going to be starting the new school year off with season three. I guess we get to be juniors at this point. Um, we don't actually have a this good... Is a dangerous, this is kind of a dangerous uh, format to be in because it implies that someday we'll graduate and be done. No, because we'll just go to college and then um, graduate school and then get our PhDs. We got 20 years of content going. Mr. Feeney will follow us wherever we go. <laughs> yes. Yes. We didn't really come up with a good name for the next episode, but the next episode is dropping on 9-11. So we're kind of talking about pop culture that jumps the gun with history. Is it possible? Is there such thing as too soon when we're making pop culture about like big thematic events and moments? So uh, Martha, what are you assigning? And do you have a better name for the episode? I'm assigning the film, the Robert Pattinson vehicle, Remember Me, from 2010. Uh-huh. Uh, IMDb is telling me that you can watch it on Amazon Prime, so cool. watch it there. Nice. Uh, I'm assigning the Catherine Bigelow movie, The Hurt Locker, because, you know, let's talk about the Iraq War and stuff. Uh, technically still ongoing. Woo! Yeah. Um, great. So we will talk to you in two weeks on 9-11. Until then, class dismissed. Cool. This episode's going to go long, but that's okay. I'll see what I can cut, but we'll I, see. We didn't start recording until like a quarter after, and then we took a break. I don't think it'll be too bad.